Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. I'm Greg Roman, joined by our producer Marilyn Stern in studio, and I'm very privileged to welcome someone who I've been reading from afar for the last few years since his preeminent thesis came out, British Jihadism, The Detail and the Denial. Dr. Paul Stott from the Henry Jackson Society in London joins us this morning. Dr. Stott, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for, uh, for, for inviting me and having me on. Of course. Now, you've been with Henry Jackson for about a little over a year now at their Center for the Response to Radicalization and Terrorism as a fellow. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, the, the bulk of what we do, uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure there's enough hours in the day to, to get it all done, but our, our focus is on um, terrorism and on extremism, political and religious extremism and obviously with with recent events we've seen three terrorist attacks in the UK in uh, in almost as uh, as many months we're producing briefings uh, writing articles responding to media uh, requests informing uh, journalists as to the um, you know the background of these attacks giving details on the uh, the perpetrators and we also produce our own research and reports so I've got a report coming out next month on the Muslim Brotherhood in the UK and uh, we've also got a, a report coming out on uh, on the far right and some of these uh, far right terror attacks where we've seen people producing online manifestos we saw that with the Christchurch attacker and also the Poway synagogue attack last year now addressing a, a similar manifesto perhaps in this case a good manifesto I'd like to bring up a uh, paragraph that you wrote in your 2015 thesis on mm. British jihadism, the detail and the denial. And I think it directly links to a debate that's going on right now on terrorism, recidivism in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And also on these uh, two recent attacks, these knife attacks with fake suicide vests, um, one that was over by the uh, the House of Commons, another which took place uh, along a very uh, populated Market Street. And you write, mm. and, and this is sort of the way I want to frame this, on the um, development of what you call religious terrorism which often targets women and minority groups, may have been expected to face critical examination from academics, in particular from within the critical terrorism study school. Regre regrettably, such rigor is found to be lacking. Indeed, it is within the academy that some of the most sustained attempts to deny any religious influences behind contemporary terrorism have been found. And you go on to talk about some feminist critiques and, and other areas, but I want to segue from what you're saying, that there has been yeah. this inability to connect religion, or let's call it, you know, sort of a philosophy on the way in which we lead our lives, specifically within the Islamist variety. We can't attack Muslims in the United Kingdom. You know, it's 99.5% of those who are uh, uh, Muslim Asians in the United Kingdom are, you know, obeying the Queen's values, whatever else. But it's that 0 0.5, 1%, 5%, whatever we want to come up with that is yeah. uh, uh, fertile ground for sowing the seeds of terrorism. And we see that, you know, there's individuals like Ahmad Shudri, and one of the most mm. powerful ISIS propagators and, 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 and influencers gets a jail sentence for three years, four years. He gets let out halfway through. Another individual convicted of terrorism offenses gets 24 years in jail. He's let out after 12, goes on to commit a suicide attack, so on and so forth. What is the current debate going on in the United Kingdom of not how to deal with um, Islamists prior to committing an offense? We can get to that in a second. But yeah. after they've committed offense, there's this balance between uh, 
punishment and rehabilitation. And they've been tilting towards rehabilitation, thinking that these guys could be changed. But that all took a turn for another opinion after a convicted uh, terrorist attended a rehabilitation conference, went out, and then killed three Brits. Yes, there was a guy called uh, Usman Khan who'd been convicted of terrorist offences uh, way back, I think, in, in 2010 and had been released automatically at the halfway point of his uh, sentence. He had been supported, I think, very generously by those involved, by, by a charity connected to Cambridge University who were involved in the rehabilitation of prisoners and he was allowed to attend a, a conference near London Bridge um, that was, was organised for, for rehabilitating prisoners. And he basically attended the event in the morning and then after lunch um, went into the, uh, the toilets, changed into a, an outfit that included a fake suicide vest, produced several knives and began stabbing people. And two of, uh, he, he killed two people um, at the conference, and they were both people who had supported him. And uh, I think that was, was a real uh, wake-up call um, for people here, that when it comes to rehabilitating offenders, we have to look slightly differently at people who are perhaps in prison for, for fraud or stealing motor vehicles or whatever, and people who've got very deeply held political or religious or politico-religious values that are different to ours, and those values are likely to endure for some time. So give us a you know broad brush. You're coming out with this report on the Muslim Brotherhood in the UK in a month from now. Yeah. What can we expect from your report? Well, I think one of the things which uh, I want to get across in there, and you had a similar discussion uh, in, in the U.S., around about the time Jamal Khashoggi was uh, was killed in uh, in Turkey, how the media discourse was played, and uh, that there were certain people who seemed to be able to direct it uh, almost to to journalists who perhaps weren't very knowledgeable about Saudi Arabia, weren't very knowledgeable about the Muslim Brotherhood, weren't very knowledgeable about Mr. Khashoggi. And we saw a similar process in the UK where I think Muslim Brotherhood-related actors, you know, work the TV studios very hard. And whilst it was correct that they condemned the, the, the dreadful murder of, of Khashoggi and the, the behaviour of Saudi Arabia, they were utterly dishonest as to uh, Khashoggi, the man, and didn't, of course, uh, stress his, his Muslim Brotherhood lineage or didn't really get at the complete paradox and nonsense of this portrayal of Khashoggi as a sort of, um, you know, warrior for freedom of speech armed only with his pen. I mean, this was somebody who was leaving the United States with its commitment to uh, uh, freedom of speech to go and live in Turkey and go and work in Turkey, a country which jails more journalists than any other nation in the world. Right, and we also know about his connections with his financiers, uh, sort of getting double-dipped on the Qatari payroll, arguably the largest financier of the Brotherhood in the rest of the world. But So, so that's, that's on the, the, the individual level. What do you have yeah. to say about the influence of countries like Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, others in the United Kingdom on the discourse that's going on on the conversation of Islam outside of London or from within London and outside the rest of the country, is there any sort of state-sponsored direction for this, for this, for this conversation that's taking place? Uh, 
Well, I think the two crucial countries that uh, that we focus on, that I focus on in the report, are Qatar and Turkey. And both of those countries, I think, have long-term foreign policy aims that they're, they're backing up with, with money uh, and influence. Turkey's obviously gone through a very distinct process in terms of, um, you know, Erdogan wanted to create these pious generations, but he also wants to influence uh, Muslim exile communities across Europe. And so we've seen this in, in several uh, EU countries, most notably uh, Germany, but also we're beginning to see it now in, in the UK. And, and just before Christmas, when Erdogan uh, was in, uh, in the UK for a NATO conference, he opened a, a £23 million mosque in Cambridge that's been jointly funded by Turkey and Qatar. So, if you like, both of these countries are trying to shape how uh, Islam is, is lived and performed here in the UK. And it's not just limited to the United Kingdom. Also in the United States, the U.S.'s largest mosque, the Dianet, which is being built right outside of Washington, D.C.'s main sponsor, the government of Turkey. Uh, and and yeah. we probably don't take into account the $15 billion that helped float the Turkish lira two years ago when the country was subject to yeah. sanctions from the United States because of its hostility against a non-Muslim religious official, a Christian pastor, Andrew Parsons. So moving a little bit over to um, the discussion that's going on around Islamism in the United Kingdom, we have a new prime minister, Boris Johnson. He has yep. committed to uh, ending the early release of uh, prisoners convicted of terrorism offenses, especially those of the ideological nature, which we saw in these last two attacks. Uh, what else is on his agenda for de-radicalizing British uh, Islamists? Well, there was a, there was a big report uh, way back in 2016 by uh, a former um, senior figure in the prison service called Ian Aitchison. And the Conservative government at the time, I think, started to, to look at some of those proposals and, and didn't really progress them. And I think that's one of the areas that the Prime Minister will now, uh, as well as dealing with the, the sentencing issue, uh, he will now have to progress. The, the difficulty in some ways for Boris Johnson is he's a, a Conservative Prime Minister with a comfortable majority, 80-odd seats, so he should be able to pass the legislation that he wishes uh, through Parliament. The difficulty, perhaps, is that uh, there's an enormous amount of hostility towards him, towards the Conservatives, towards any policies that are seen as robust with regards to counter-terrorism in, if you like, some of the sort of institutions, some of the, uh, the, the places where these policies may well need to be, to be carried out. So we've seen some reluctance at uh, times within the police, within the prison service, within um, civil service, uh, within uh, academia, outright uh, opposition with very little uh, debate. And so in all those sorts of areas, the, the, you know, the, the intellectual wheels of power, um, Boris has got a fight on his hands. And uh, that's going to be one of the big issues for him going forward. There's a danger he can win the votes and, and lose the arguments. There's a big fight right now between Dominic Cummings, the uh, Prime Minister's chief advisor, and those who are members of the senior civil service 
over the appointments in uh, UK ministries. I think that there was a call for weirdos and oddballs to apply for the highest positions uh, in different UK ministries and even at, at number 10 uh, Downing Street where the British Prime Minister sits. And then the union came back, the union who represents these senior civil servants saying, uh, no, we will only have people from within the civil service who will get these positions and these appointments. Uh, anyone else yes, is unqualified? Uh, Sorry to interrupt. That, that leads to conservative thinking, uh, conservative in the worst sense of the term. Uh, I think what Dominic Cummings was, was looking to do was to try to achieve diversity in the, in the proper sense of the, the, the meaning of the word, where you don't just have people who you know, look differently in a room, you have people who think differently. And this is one of the, the challenges, really, that, that I think we face in the UK, that we have a lot of big public institutions and organisations, it's probably the same in the US, who say they're committed to diversity, they appoint people on a sort of tick box uh, basis, so to get, to get people from a range of ethnic backgrounds, whatever, but you end up with a group of people who all think the same. And what we actually need is a bit of diversity of thought in order to bring those new ideas through. So I think Dominic Cummings is, is a very interesting figure. And um, the, the downside, perhaps, is he's got a real fight on his hands with some of those civil servants. Right, and I think that when you have that diversity of thinking, it leads to more, dare I say, progressive solutions. And I mean in the right sense of the word, not in the political sense of the word as being discussed here around Bernie Sanders and some other of our uh, of our far-left Corbynite-isk um, friends in the United States on actually thinking outside the box and trying to address these issues in uh, ending Islamism in the United Kingdom, root and stem. Uh, rather than just trying to, to put some folks in prison, hope that they get further radicalized by uh, Islamic clerics who are within prison. Let them out. Yes. Have Islamist uh, social welfare and Dawah organizations trade to them so they get even further radicalized, and then we end up with these stabbing attacks. What's your take on the sort of... Um, you know, the ecosystem which exists that is this trifecta of one, which is radicalization within Asian communities, uh, two, and, and we'll, we'll say it for American audience within a, a Middle Eastern and, and uh, it's called Pakistani Central Asian communities, mm. um, two, we have then the commitment of the attack. They get sentenced. They go into the prison. They're actually housed with other extremists, and then they get out. And then you have these large government tenders, which are going to organizations which themselves have a history of extremism. How do you break that chain? Well, the first step, and perhaps the most important one, is to is to actually recognise uh, that the chain exists and needs to be broken. I mean, one of the reasons I I called my my PhD in my forthcoming book, British Jihadism: The Detail and the Denial, is because so many people are in denial. And uh, what we tend to get in the UK is clarity for brief periods after terrorist attacks, and then things just go back to the way they were um, before. Um, you mentioned uh, Pakistan in there in your um, in your comments. Uh, Usman Khan, the London Bridge uh, attacker, his first uh, terrorist conviction uh, had included uh, a conviction for trying to set up a, a terrorist training camp in uh, the part of Pakistan, uh, part of Pakistani-controlled Kashmir his family were from. And I think when you talk about British Islam, and certainly its most radical elements, 
although the sort of Muslim Brotherhood-related groups are important political players and have real influence, particularly with the Labour Party and some of the trade unions now and, and, and in academia, when you're looking at the, the most extreme end, time after time after time, we see individuals of uh, Pakistani heritage, uh, sometimes Bangladeshi heritage, and who've had... Um, Certainly before the Syrian conflict, these guys were very often traveling over to Pakistan, to Afghanistan, doing military training there, were supporting the jihadist groups in, uh, in Kashmir. And that's not just a right old mess, but a right old mess that leads back to one of our allies, the Pakistani government. Right. I mean, we've had our own share of critiques on the uh, intelligence service, the ISI, uh, their support yeah. in Waziristan, the uh, federal uh, autonomous tribal areas, you know, the, the, the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, the Haqqani network, whatever else. But when it starts hitting us here at home, that's when people start realizing, hold on a second, what exactly are we doing allying with this government? What is our policy over there? They forget the fact that Pakistan blocked NATO transport for logistics and resupply for the better part of two years, thereby inhibiting and raising the cost of the NATO uh, forces in Afghanistan, but that, that's that's a sort of a non sequitur to this. I want to bring a quote to you from Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking about the early release of convicted terrorists, mm. specifically uh, Islamist terrorists. He says in a uh, AP article, which uh, came out a few days uh, after the most latest attack, addressing the issue. There is this is a liberal country. It is a tolerant country. But I think the idea of automatic early release for people who obviously continue to pose a threat to the public has come to the end of its useful life. Now, we, we've spoken about that subject here. But here's the next issue we have to talk about, which I think is that of the um, uh, penitentiary system in the United Kingdom mm. as it relates to extremists. He, he asks us a question. I want you to answer this question for the prime minister. What would you tell him if you were sitting in front of PM Johnson right now? Do you detain them and block in one group? And try to keep them together because that avoids them, as it were, infecting or passing the virus of their beliefs to others in jail. Or do you disperse them and try to stop them reinfecting each other? What's your take on how we deal with these guys in prison? Well, I mentioned uh, the report by a guy, uh, Ian Aitchison, a little earlier. And I think I have some sympathy for, for his uh, Views which American readers, I think, can read in the, the on the Spectator um, website, and I think he was looking at the historic precedent that we have in the UK. That if you think back twenty years or so to the Northern Ireland conflict, right. we Maze basically prison. had yeah we had the Mays Prison where the IRA and uh, the lawyers paramilitary groups where everybody was put together. They had what they used to call the OC, the officer commanding, who would be in charge of the particular wing. And basically the views of the organization, its military structures, were reproduced. What I think Aitchison was, was recommending, and what I think the Prime Minister has to consider, is a process where you disperse the more uh, lowly figures within the organization, where you um, allow them... Um, you know, a degree of association, those with perhaps the less serious convictions, but those who are the clerics, those who are the leaders of men, those who are uh, potential uh, followers, that they need to be controlled much more strictly, potentially uh, kept together, but with very, very limited association. And so, you know, if they're not able to uh, proselytize, they won't be able to, to recruit new foot soldiers. 
And what, what, what's clearly been happening in the UK is that um, you know, we've, we've had this problem in the prison system at a time when the prison system has been suffering from a great deal of disorder, there's been a lack of funding, there's been an enormous problem with drugs that I think has greatly distracted the authorities. Huge number of prison officers have resigned and it, it, a sort of critical mass has, has developed and it's playing out now on the British streets and the public won't have it. I mean, I, you know, God forbid that I suggest an economic engine for the Falkland Islands. So work both Guantanamo for us. Perhaps you can send your most extreme somewhere south of the equator. Uh, but well, some, something to look after all those sheep on the Falklands. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> who knows? These guys could do some good there. Listen, there's also Diego Garcia. At least it's within their geographic proximity from where they came before they emigrated to uh, to the uh, to the UK. Uh, Doctor Stott. I have to ask you about the Labour Party because mm. there's the leadership election taking place soon. Yes. Um, we have these different candidates. Uh, I'm looking at those who I put into two camps, those who are in the pro-Corbyn Labour camp and those who are in the minor, but you know, uh, hopefully stronger, and I, I doubt that's going to happen, but anti-Corbyn Labour camp. Uh, what's your take on the Labour primary as it relates to the Muslim community within the United Kingdom. I mean, it's a really big source of votes. Uh, I have my own uh, anecdotes that I tell about, you know, going from the House of Commons to Luton Airport. My uh, uh, Asian uh, uh, Uber drivers blaming everything on the Rothschilds, on the uh, the Jews, and of course me, the the, the Israeli, um, for all the ills. I hope you didn't give him a tip. Uh, I give him some <laughs> tips. I give him some tips about how to be nice to people, but uh, you know, otherwise it's the shalom, and I said salam alaikum, yeah. uh, habibi, and then I said see you later. But uh, but uh, uh, nice chap, otherwise. But uh, but in all in all seriousness, uh, what's what's the Labour Party's position on the um, not even the position? I mean, there really isn't really a position right now. What's the debate that's going on within the Labour Party as we head to this primary for the leadership of, of the party, and also how it's relating to the uh, Islamist issues in uh, in the UK? I think it would be a, a mistake to believe that there are significant differences between any of the candidates when it comes to issues with regards to counter-terrorism or radicalization or working relationships with you know, some of the big Muslim representative organizations. I mean, we have the, the two biggest in the UK are the Muslim Association of Britain, which historically has a crossover or influence with the Muslim Brotherhood. And then there's a second group, the Muslim Council of Britain, which was formed by people attached to uh, the Jamaat Islami, the main clerical party in, uh, in Pakistan. And Labour, as you say, uh, is, is very well uh, rooted, very uh, reliant in some cases on, uh, on votes from uh, the Muslim community. And whether you're looking at the right of the Labour Party, whether you're looking at the left or the centre, all of those wings of the party tend to say pretty similar things. They tend to develop uh, good relations where they can and uncritical relations. Uh, with those types of, of organizations. So Emily Thornbury, who uh, is the shadow uh, foreign secretary, for example, she's been quite critical of Mr. Corbyn, uh, you know, on some areas over Brexit or whatever. She's probably uh, more to the right than he is. 
but you know she will meet with senior figures um, from Muslim Brotherhood related organizations in the UK like the Cordoba Foundation she's spoken for them at meetings in the House of Commons and you could say pretty much the same about uh, about all of the other um, candidates Keir Starmer who's um, probably first or second in the running depending on uh, on who you listen to he had a, a background uh, as a lawyer here in the UK and I think there's some critical attention going to his role as the, the director of public prosecutions that in some cases uh, some of the counter-terrorism uh, prosecutions when he was in charge you know perhaps weren't as robust as they could have been that people were uh, charges were being left to lie on file you know that we could perhaps have uh, wrung out some uh, some harder uh, prosecutions than actually happened but um there's, there's also, I think, a, a point I make quite a lot of parallels between the UK and the US in this area, that, you know, when I see some of the arguments of Bernie Sanders, look at uh, AOC, the, the Talher uh, Omar, um, you know, there's their arguments, their policies, uh, the direction that they're taking the Democrats in is really the direction that the Labour Party uh, has been going down. And, and Dr. Studd, we have, we have to end here. We're, we're a little bit close to the edge of time. But if I can mm. recommend to you, we have this Islamist in politics program here in the U.S. from the uh, Middle East Forum. Perhaps Henry right. Jackson can start a sister project, uh, Islamist, and I think you'll only find it in labor politics. But uh, God forbid we're accused of being partisan. Uh, Dr. Dr. Stott from the Henry Jackson Society, forthcoming book. He has a great article today on uh, the UK and Turkey. You all should read it. Go to his Twitter feed. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All the best. This is Greg Roman and Marilyn Sturton here with Middle East Forum Radio on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio. We'll hear from you next week.